Welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Your hosts are Becky Olson and Sharon Hennepin. Our show is here to help breast cancer patients, survivors, their friends and family with the resources, support, and inspiration they can use right now. Here are your hosts, Sharon and Becky. Welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. My name is Becky Olson. I'm a three-time, 21-year breast cancer survivor. I'm also a professional speaker and really excited because I'm heading to Memphis next week to speak at two events down there. And I'm also the published author of The Hat That Saved My Life. And I'm Sharon Hennepin. I'm a 23-year breast cancer survivor. I'm also a certified life coach and the author of my upcoming book, Thriving Beyond Cancer. We're both the co-founders of Breast Friends as well. And, you know, we all go through difficult challenges, you know, and for Sharon and I, it was breast cancer. But people go through other illnesses or personal tragedy, and some of us end up making that tragedy or that situation our life's work. And Sharon and I are no exception to that. We started Breast Friends from the ground up as a result of our shared cancer experiences. And I, and I have to just say, Sharon and I kind of always laugh about this because when we started Breast Friends over 16 years ago now, we had no idea how to start a nonprofit. Um, we did realize pretty quickly, though, that you need a good team of people around you. And we have a guest today that's fits that bill perfectly. Sharon, I'll let you introduce him. Absolutely. Our guest today has a great deal of experiences helping people do exactly that. Brad Lebowski is a nonprofit management consultant with vast experience in the nonprofit field. He's helped us along the way as well. So we're very grateful to Brad's um, help. So please help me welcome Brad Lebowski. Woohoo, Brad! Hey, woohoo! <laughs> Thank you, Sharon and Becky. Really uh, excited to be here today. Um, uh, like Becky and Sharon said, my name is Brad Lebowski. I've been working with nonprofits uh, since 1994. Um, I got my MBA in nonprofit management specific to finance and budgeting. And I think what makes me unique in helping nonprofits is I have a corporate background. I work with Fortune 250 companies for 30 years. And at the same time, I work with nonprofits as well. So I bring that business experience to nonprofits, and I also bring that mission-driven strategy to nonprofits. And I really am uh, very grateful to have the ability to help uh, people in our community, help people really across the country, but have really enjoyed my time with Becky and Sharon, and Breast Friends is an amazing organization, mm-hmm. and we've done some really good work together. Yes, we well, sure have. Brad, we appreciate we'll, we'll, it. We'll, um, we'll, we'll send you your payment later for that. Thanks. <laughs> oh, payment's already received. Things are going well. That's my payment. Exactly. We keep on doing what we're doing, huh? Exactly <laughs> so, right. So, you know, when when Becky and I had that kind of <laughs> that that lunch <laughs> where we actually sat down and um, we're deciding uh, kind of like, why have we remained friends all these years? Why have we both survived breast cancer? And what was kind of missing in the uh, breast cancer world? Um, that's where the birth of Breast Friends happened, was right there over a lunch table. And um, I know some people out there probably have had those kind of moments where they've thought about doing something. Um, and But 
I have to admit, I, I ask myself, what were we thinking some days? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's 16 amazing. years later, That's we still wonder. <laughs> we really didn't know what we didn't know at that time. Yeah. So thank goodness for people like Brad that can help us out. So Brad, when you're starting to create a, an organization, what do you what do you do? How do you start? Well, I think the first thing you think about is nonprofit organizations yeah. are charities I, because yes. they think of a public benefit. How can you help people? How can you help the public in what oh. unique way? So when you're developing your niche, you're really thinking of your mission statement. Who do you want to help and why? And why is that important? And I always recommend doing a little research, and I know that Becky and Sharon did this, figuring out how many women had breast cancer or ovarian cancer in a local area, watch that number over time, is it growing, is it shrinking, what's happening to that number, and then really had a very meaningful and specific mission. If the mission is too broad, um, it's difficult for people to engage because they're not sure if they fit or not. So when you define your niche, you really want to think about who do you want to help and why, and is there evidence to support it? Because that evidence, whether it be statistics on how many people you need to help or uh, trends in, in healthcare overall or trends in cancer overall, those types of things will not only help you grow your organization but help you fund your organization. If you create too narrow of a niche, that has either low or poor funding or doesn't have that either sense of urgency or that attraction to it, then even though your organization may do terrific work, it may be very difficult to fund. So an example, we started a nonprofit to help people that live in poverty find family wage jobs. So here in the Pacific Northwest, we did our research and found out that the Oregon Food Bank serves 920,000 people, of which 74% of them live in poverty. Wow. So that's a big number, and that helped us define our mission to help people not only build a pathway out of poverty, but help them get to college, help them find their family wage job, and really stay with them in the job to make sure they can retain it over time. So we kind of did the research first, and then from that research, developed the um, mission statement. And then what we did was we looked on a list of national nonprofits. And the top four national nonprofits, two of which dealt with poverty, one dealt with food, and the other was Christianity. So we wanted this new nonprofit to be non-denominational, so when you had food and poverty, we called it Hunger for Success. And that's mm, how we came wow. up with our name, and that's how we developed our mission. That's interesting. You know, when we set our mission in the very beginning, when, or our, our niche, as, we're, as we talk about, the one thing that we kind of figured out what was missing in the breast cancer world was um, how how do you teach friends and family how to be supportive? Because in our situation and what we've learned over many, many years of doing this since is that one of the first things that people say to a cancer patient is, oh, I'm so sorry. Let me know if there's anything I can do. And the cancer patient always says, thank you, I will. And then, of course, they don't. And so 
that that niche for us was how do we teach the friends and family to be more proactive and teach you know, so that they can offer support that's accepted. And so that's kind of how we started with our niche. And what we found in that process, you know, there's a lot of cancer organizations out there. And so finding that niche, that gave us kind of a, a different and unique foothold into the marketplace. So finding your niche, Brad, as you're indicating, is super important because if you're if you're doing the same thing that everybody else is doing, it does get a little harder to compete for dollars because it's like, well, everybody else is doing that too. Why should we right. support you, you, right? You have to stand out, stand yeah. out in your, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes things right. change, you know, sometimes things change. Like Sharon kind of, her heart was in a kind of a different place at that same time because she wanted, well, Sharon, why don't you tell that? I mean, you, you're, <laughs> that, our tell funny the story. story. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that was, <laughs> that was a hoot. So we had spent a year figuring out our materials, figuring out what we wanted to do. And we kind of had a coming out party, if you will, at, um, at our Race for the Cure, they had a health expo for two days before the Race for the Cure here in the local area in Portland. And um, so we literally were standing, dragging people into our booth, talking to people about what we do. And we would say, "You do have you ever heard about Breast Friends? And of course, we knew no one had. And so no matter what they answered, we would say, well, let me tell you. And we would now, just... Sharon, before you do, before you tell them, I want to remind people what you just said for a year we met every week for a year to strategize about what breast friends would be okay carry on (laughs) yeah and and you know the funny thing was about that I mean we worked so hard every week every week for a year so anyway we're chatting and my um, fiance at the time was sitting behind us sitting on a cooler um, folding, folding, even you know, afford the extra chairs. <laughs> I know, full, you know, folding like hot off of our home computers, um, our brochures that we were handing out fast and furious, right? <clears throat> anyway, so at the end of the day, literally eight hours later, he says, do you know you guys are actually saying two different messages? And we're like, what? How could that possibly be? Because <laughs> we met every week for a year. Every week for a year, yeah. Anyways. And, and it really was because Becky was the friend who felt like she didn't know how to support me when I went Not through it clue. since I was the first one. And I was that patient that didn't want any other patient to go through this alone. So that was kind of our kind of our vantage point, if you will. And so Breast Friends is all of that. It's kind of like two ends of the same elephant, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> So, but it, it yes. really, it does really, like basically niche happens when, because you're passionate about something. And I was passionate about teaching people to be a better friend, to be proactive, like I wasn't. And, you know, I learned some things and I wanted to share that. And Sharon was first in our circle to go through cancer. So she spent a lot of time alone and she wanted to make sure no one else went through this alone. And that's how the two different perspectives kind of evolved because we tend to go toward what we're passionate about. Exactly. And so, Brad, as, as a person is defining their niche for their nonprofit, you know, it's so important, isn't it, that they find that that place that they're passionate about? Is, is there absolutely? You know, passion it, drives us all, and I think what's also important is that you surround yourself with people 
that are not just supportive, but understand your mission and understand the need, you know, and, and I know we're going to talk about, you know, finding people to help you and build a team, but that mission attracts people, not only people that need your services, but people that have always thought, oh, I want to volunteer and help people to do that. Mm-hmm. So it's really a force of, a strong force really to attract all kinds of people, volunteer donors, employees, um, clients, people that you want to help, healthcare professionals that didn't know this type of support existed. I remember being at one of your board meetings and one of the doctors there who's an oncologist says, Brad, there are some people out there that think cancer is contagious. Yeah. And we need to talk to them and educate them. And I was blown away. I'm like, it can't be. Yeah. It's like, yeah, some people don't know. And that's the amazing niche that you've developed and still do today, of course, and do an amazing job is that people that work with someone with cancer can really understand what it is and how hard it is to ask for help. So this is what you can do. And part of what you can do to help is really understand what's going on. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So, so yeah, um, and we are going to talk about about the people to make up as part of your team. But before we do that, let's let's talk about you know deciding on the name. And Sharon, I think you had a couple more questions there. Yeah, I mean, just just figuring out the the name of your organization because, of course, that is going to be out there for a long time. I mean, I know some people do change their name later on, but I know picking a name for us kind of felt like a god thing. <laughs> but um, at the same time. Uh, how do people go about picking a name? I think that's a good question. I think there's two things uh, that I would recommend. The first, which I think you and I have done before, I love using three by five index cards. Mm-hmm. And you write down keywords or uh, words that strike an emotion about what you're doing. And you spread out these three by five cards in a table and you kind of play with them and rearrange them and see what comes up. The second thing that you do when you get some ideas is you check a couple of different websites. One, the state that you're in, check to see if the name is taken. And then what I always like to recommend is go to a, the website or a URL of your choice where you get your domains mm-hmm. and type in a website that you think would be great, either the name itself or an abbreviation of the name or an acronym of the name, and then see if that website is taken. You know, Brad, that is is such... That's great. That is great advice. And, and I just want to share something real quick. Sure. You know, we have the name Breast Friends and we are breastfriends.org. We're breastfriends.com. But it is, and we also hold the trademark for the name Breast Friends. It is amazing how many little groups pull that name Breast Friends because it's so cute and then cute use it. <laughs> you know, it's a cute name and we don't mind if they're using it for a, you know, a team, a running team or a little thing like that. But, you know, when somebody tries to launch another Breast Friends and call it Breast Friends dot something, um, but they haven't checked. I mean, we hold the trademark. So do right. that. Make sure that you check the trademark office, you know, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. See if Someone else has the name, you know, because it's it, it's really a cumbersome thing to try to change your name after the fact, you know, after well, you've done yeah. that. Right, but, right. And know, to your so. point, if it's a name that you really want to protect and think it's fantastic, 
you can find either an attorney that will volunteer their time or yes. pay a, a, a modest amount to get it done. I think it's six, or it was $695 to trademark a name. There's also registering a logo. If you think mm-hmm. the logo is really fantastic and want to protect that, I think that's four or $500 to do that. So there is some money involved to secure. A website's pretty cheap. It can be anywhere from 15 to $30 to protect a URL. But when you do that, you do .org, you do .com, you do .net, and mm-hmm. you pay an extra couple of bucks a year to protect that URL for yourself. Exactly. Yeah. And doing that early on is doing that early on is really good. It's kind of funny because after Sharon and I had that lunch meeting where we had all this conversation, (laughs) then she, I went to my office and I registered the name with the Secretary of State here in Oregon, and she registered the URL, and then we called each other and said, "Okay, now what? (laughs) (laughs) Now what do we do?" (laughs) Right. So that name and that URL can be transferred to Facebook, to Twitter, to Instagram. So when we did Hunger for Success, we said, well, that's a little too long to type. So we came up with help H, the number 4S. So not only was that our .org, but that was our Facebook, that was our Instagram, that was our Twitter, that was our phone number. So it's kind of a marketing thing as well as people get used to that, that moniker, if you will, and that helps market and define a brand for who you are and what you do. That's great. Absolutely. Brad, we actually have to go out on a break. Um, and we didn't get very far through this first segment, so we will um, pick it up on the other side of the break. So, listeners, please stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to keep our doors open and to keep this radio program alive. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can visit us at breastfriends.org. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time for Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Visit breastfriends.org and contribute today. When a woman is diagnosed with cancer, she faces unique challenges. No one understands this better than the experts at Compass Oncology. Our Women's Cancer Program includes a team of specialists in breast and gynecologic cancers, genetic testing, and the ongoing care of women with high risk factors. From targeted therapies and clinical trials to needed emotional support, Compass is a leader in treating women's cancer. Find out more at compassoncology.com. When was the last time you felt free? It's time to uncover that feeling again with the compassion of a cross and shield and the power of a card that opens doors to the best hospitals and medical centers in all 50 states. Giving you the freedom to love, to dream, to dance like no one is watching. Regions Blue Cross Blue Shield. Live fearless. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are tuned into Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. 
To reach the program today, please call us at 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to becky at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to our program. We've been talking uh, to Brad Lebowski about really turning your passion into a nonprofit organization and doing good work. So, Brad, why don't we just jump right into building your team? Because you certainly don't want to try to do this by yourself. Yeah, absolutely. You want to be able to uh, balance the team as much as possible. You want to start with people that you know, um, people that you feel very comfortable with, people that are uh, supportive, um, but will tell you what you need to hear in terms of feedback and improvement. Um, you definitely want to have a type of financial person. It could be a CPA, could be an accountant, could be a small business owner, somebody that really understands the structure of a business, and that that will be important not only for your starting paperwork, but it's important to uh, to just save and manage uh, the numbers coming in. If somebody donates five thousand, you know you don't want to spend six thousand. You want to be able to manage that very carefully. Right. Um, there are people that uh, do fundraising professionally, but a lot of times in boards, it's tough to find someone who's either in sales or understands how to do an ask, but a lot of times a good fundraising person is someone that works for a company that uh, tells their employees to volunteer or if an employee donates a certain amount of money, that employer will match. So sometimes it's not what you do, but who you know. And Mm -hmm. do you know people who've planned fundraising events before? Do you know people who work with other organizations or corporations that are good in philanthropy? Um, Those are people that you want to be able to get a hold of. Um, Somebody in marketing and design is always important, but if you can't find that person for your board, you can always go to Indeed.com. I'm sorry, what is it? Indeed.com, is that what you said? Okay. Right. Brad, before before we get... Thank you. Before we get off of the financial part of this, there's something I really want to share, and I think it's really important, and I feel very strongly about this, and I know Sharon does as well. When you are starting a nonprofit, you know, it's hard to know what do you do with the money when it comes in. And so right away, Sharon and I, very early on, as we established Breast Friends, um, before, you know, before we started to really earn money, in fact, the very first checks that we got were for a speaking event that we did here locally. They paid us each $25, and it was really cool. So we decided, we decided we would take those two checks for $25, match it with another $25 each, and we went down to the bank, and we opened up a nonprofit checking account in the name of Breast Friends, and we put that money in there. And because it's so easy for people to start to intermingle funds into their personal bank account. Oh, yeah. You don't want to do that. You don't own that money. If you're a nonprofit, you don't own that money. It is not yours. So it needs to be protected. It needs to go into a a small, you know, even if, like we said, we started our bank account with $100. And we have never, ever been in the hole. (laughs) And it started to build from there. But uh, Brad, would you agree that, I mean, maybe we did it wrong, but it sure felt right and it still feels right that that's, that's the way you, because you've got to ca- account for that money. Donors need to know that their money is being used in the Absolutely. right way. Yeah, so do you have any other advice on that? Yeah, because it's and just amazing fact, how many people, when people will want do to that. donate. 
they want to look and see how are these folks managing their business. Yeah. Is this a good investment? If I give my money, will most of the money go to programming or most of the money go to overhead? So that financial person really helps you organize that and manage that. And mm-hmm. it not only helps you save money, but it helps you attract people to participate. Yep. And, and then the other thing you want to do with financial resources is we, you, there needs to be a system of checks and balances. And it's not because you don't trust the people in your organization, but it helps the donors feel more secure. So what we do at Breast Friends is we have one person who authorizes the bills that, yes, this is a legitimate expense. It's okay to pay. We have a bookkeeper who actually writes the check for that bill. And then Sharon and I can sign those checks. We are the only two in the organization who can actually sign the check. And then we have a CPA on our board who pulls the reports and and gives analysis. And then we have a completely separate CPA who does our tax returns at the end of each year. So I know that sounds like a lot of steps, but it is a check and balance. You know, we, we never have to worry about somebody absconding with all of our money because there are many people looking at the books along the way. So you don't have to start with that many people, but at least a couple so that, you know, you just, the, the donors will, will be very thankful for that. So right. for sure. you want to be good stewards of your money, obviously. Yeah. And like Brad said, making sure that the bulk of your money is going toward the actual programs, the, mm-hmm. the patients you're serving, the, the, you know, the food you're buying for the hungry or whatever it is that right. you want to do with your um, nonprofit. So, yeah, makes sense. Yep. So, okay, carry on. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> right. And I think that's really important because sometimes we don't understand things and sometimes uh, it's hard for us to ask for help. And I think financial, and that's why, you know, with my corporate background, I help a lot of nonprofits figure that out. Um, you know, that's not something everybody knows. And it's something that's really helpful along the way because you don't want to be uh, underwater. You don't want to run out of funds to help people. You want to keep things going. Right. So I think it's a great point and, and really good to emphasize that financial person or business person is really important to have. Um, yeah. We covered marketing and we talked about that uh, just a little bit to help with design, to help with social media, to help with the branding aspect of the organization. And then, of course, you think about people that will help you with the programming. Uh, in Breast Friends, it could be a physician or a nurse or a clinic. Uh, it could be other survivors that you may want to incorporate. It could be someone that you've helped along the way uh, before you started the organization and have them on the board to kind of help guide uh, what it's like from the, uh, you know, participant's perspective or the client's perspective. Yep. Good and advice. Then, uh-huh. You also want to recruit from local corporations. For example, Wells Fargo um, has a, a leadership program where you can call them, and they're regional people throughout the country that do this, and they'll recruit a Wells Fargo executive to be on your board. And when they're involved, really? they help you, of course, they have financial Ooh. experience, but yeah. they can also donate to you, and Wells Fargo will match it. And then when you apply for a grant with Wells Fargo, you're uh, a little bit ahead of the game because they see that a Wells Fargo executive is involved and that puts you towards the top of the list. doesn't guarantee you money, but it certainly puts you at the top of the list. And there's lots of organizations. I know Becky was telling me the other day about Intel and there's other corporations out there that really foster volunteering and putting people on committees or board uh, 
um, or just volunteers that can really help a nonprofit flourish. You know, speaking of Intel and that program that we have here, they they have a program where they um, pay for their former employees who took early retirement or whatever to do work for a nonprofit, and then Intel actually pays. So we we received uh, we've received funding for two different Intel employees to the amount of fifty thousand dollars. It's twenty five thousand. Um, for each one of them, and they're they're hired for a year or a thousand hours, basically, to do certain projects. And then once that time is up and that project is done, then you can either decide to keep them and pay for it yourself, or you know that project is done. So we have two we have two contractors working for us right now that are fully paid by Intel, which is pretty amazing, actually. It is amazing. Yeah. So yeah, it's hard to find that kind of resource, but they are definitely out there. So you know, googling something like that, it's it's a really great tool. And you know, Brad, share so much of what Sharon and I have learned over the years has come through trial and error. You know, <laughs> and it's sure. really been nice to be able to share some of this. You know, some of the mistakes that we made early on, and you know, but some of the the things that we've learned early on, and it's because of people like you that we've been able to you know, know a little bit better about what to do. Um, so the one of the people I wrote down is that you need on your team is a nonprofit consultant, somebody who can guide you through things like the paperwork and make sure that you've got all your ducks in a row and, you know, make sure that they tell you and guide you about opening the bank account and all of that kind of thing. So, right. you know, so Brad, how does a person find find a good nonprofit consultant? I mean, I know you work with with companies all over, or organizations all over the country, um, sure. and I don't know how many more of those you want. <laughs> yeah, well, but. you know, I'm always willing to help, and and sometimes I'm able to donate my time, and sometimes I have a you know fairly modest fee. Um, there is the nonprofit or. Uh, Association of Oregon, and there's a nonprofit associations of a lot of states. Um, they have dozens and dozens of consultants. And one of the things I recommend is if you can't find someone to volunteer, and I'm always happy to talk to people, and I talk to people every week, you know, about different things relating to nonprofits, but I prefer a project fee versus an hourly fee. So if you're going to choose a nonprofit consultant, and there are many out there. Most of them charge you hourly. Mm-hmm. And for a nonprofit, especially a small one, it's very hard to budget how much time that would take, yeah. and sometimes it could be very expensive. But what mm-hmm. I prefer to do is charge a project fee for a month and a half, for three months, for six months of work. This is what you know. I think the fee will be. So the nonprofit says, well, that's within our budget. And we don't have to worry about that fee going up or down. Right. So it's my right. job as the consultant either to be, you know, uh, super efficient um, and get the work done in that time period, month and a half, three months, what have you. And if I'm not efficient or it takes me more time, that time's on me, not on the right. nonprofit. Yeah. That's a right. really good point, Brad. And I and I can't stress that enough because it is hard to manage a budget if you don't know what to expect. So, yeah, that's that's really great advice. Um so and then, the, yeah, the, go ahead, Sharon. The, the applying for a 501c3, I think that's a bit daunting for anyone for sure. because, again, it's forms, it's paperwork. Um, how would you even tackle that? What 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 are your first thoughts about that? 
Sure, I can talk about that. The one thing I wanted to say, though, when selecting a nonprofit consultant, and this came up from a conversation I had earlier in the week, there's a lot of consultants that will do all the work for you, and then when they go, they go. And I think it's important mm. to find a consultant that will teach you along the way. That's that a will great... empower you yeah. to write better grants and to build strategic plans. Because if the expert just leaves with the institutional knowledge, it leaves the nonprofit to start over again. And I think that's very harmful. Good advice. So I like to teach along the way. I like to show all my work. I like to give the documents that I use, teach what I do. That empowers the nonprofit to continue um, after my project fee is done or after, hey, now we know what to do. We can do this on our own and they can save money and not pay me to do it. So I think that's a really important consideration as looking at getting help. Yeah, good advice. Very good advice. With the paperwork of of the 501c3, and typically there's a form called the 1023, it's an IRS form, the nice part about it is the IRS has made some easy forms. So, for example, you can fill out a 1023 easy form for a small nonprofit and pay $250, or you can fill out the full version of the 1023. And the example of Hunger for Success I gave you earlier, that application was over 120 pages long. Oh, boy. And you, and you pay the IRS $850 to process that. So the good news is there's ways to uh, abbreviate the process for new nonprofits. And I also have uh, a nonprofit checklist of what do you need to do, what do the mm-hmm. bylaws need to look like? What do the uh, articles of incorporation need to look like? That really makes it easy. Um, I help about three or four nonprofits a year start from scratch. Um, and I have, you know, checklists and things developed to really help them along the way mm-hmm. so it's not so daunting. Um, but the one thing that I do recommend since you are doing articles of incorporation and bylaws, which are legal documents, you definitely want an attorney to take a look at it. Some may charge. You may find an attorney to be on your board who's willing to volunteer their time to look it over. You can yeah. always find templates by state um, that make it super easy to write. Um, but um, at the same time, um, you do want an attorney to look over it because it is a legal document. Yeah. Um, but other than that, um, you know, it, it is daunting, but if you take it in small steps and you use my checklist and perhaps you avail yourself to the easy form, which is four pages versus the hundred plus that I talked about, um, it can really help you get through it, spend a little less money getting it started and um, really find your way. Yeah. So you let know, me we, ask you a question. Uh, why would anyone choose to do a 125-page form? <laughs> well, I can answer that for you because I wrote it. Okay, and, um, okay good. <laughs> basically, the more documentation you can provide, such as job descriptions, strategic plans, board responsibilities that you and I developed for Breast Friends, when right. you supply all those that stuff to the IRS, they approve you faster. So a typical oh. IRS approval process <laughs> with the long form, the 1023 form, is about three to six months. Our nonprofit was approved in 36 days. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Ours was approved that pretty helps. fast, too. But yeah. 
Yeah. Now, the reason why that's important is this. Once you're approved by the IRS that you're a charitable organization, it takes two months for them to put it on their website electronically that you're approved. A lot of larger grants and grant sources will verify your uh, charitable status online. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yep. if it takes you six months to get approved, you have to add two more months onto that to be able to get electronic verification. Okay. So and Brad, without without a five hundred one c three tax, you know, people who give you money, it may not be tax deductible. But if you have a five hundred one c three, then it's then it is tax deductible money. Is that is that correct? Because I know you can apply for a nonprofit um, organization in a state, but if you don't have that five hundred one c three, there is no guarantee that donations will be considered tax deductible. Right? Isn't that's that the correct. Biggest, in a general sense, it's 100% thing. correct. When people go to events and bid on silent auction items or buy tickets to events like Breast Friends has mm-hmm. all the time, right. a portion mm-hmm. of that is tax deductible because a portion of that money goes to covering real costs. If mm-hmm. somebody sends you a check for $100, it's just a donation, they can donate 100% of that as long as you're a charitable organization. Uh, an exempt organization registered by the IRS, which is mm-hmm. one of them is a 501c3. Um, okay. So it's not enough to your point to be a charitable organization within your own state because that doesn't necessarily mean you're exempt from taxes, as in business taxes and sales taxes, and it doesn't mean that, the, that if people give you money that it's tax deductible. You have okay. to be exempt through the IRS to do that. Well, I'm glad we jumped through those hoops many years ago. Yes, because we've been a 501c3 since the beginning, which is pretty awesome. What's interesting about the Pacific Northwest is a lot of people that have nonprofits in the state of Oregon fundraise in the state of Washington too, because people live in Vancouver or Camas or Battleground and commute to work in Portland. Right. The problem with that's not a problem per se, but you have to be registered in both states, right? Which to we are donations, yeah. and yep. a lot of nonprofits don't know that. They figure, well, we, we're in business in Oregon, therefore that's fine. But anywhere you solicit funds, you have to be a registered charity, right? Very and that's good. that's true. And we are registered in Washington and Oregon. We do get donations from across the country, but we're not necessarily soliciting there. So, um, exactly. But it's it's you know it's very points well taken. Brad, we have to take another break, and so please stay with us. We'll be back on the other side. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health & Wellness. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to keep our doors open and to keep this radio program alive. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can visit us at breastfriends.org. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time for Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Visit breastfriends.org and contribute today. When a woman is diagnosed with cancer, she faces unique challenges. No one understands this better than the experts at Compass Oncology. 
Our women's cancer program includes a team of specialists in breast and gynecologic cancers, genetic testing, and the ongoing care of women with high-risk factors. From targeted therapies and clinical trials to needed emotional support, Compass is a leader in treating women's cancer. Find out more at compassoncology.com. When was the last time you felt free? It's time to uncover that feeling again with the compassion of a cross and shield and the power of a card that opens doors to the best hospitals and medical centers in all 50 states. Giving you the freedom to love, to dream, to dance like no one is watching. Regions Blue Cross Blue Shield. Live fearless. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are tuned in to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. To reach the program today, please call us at 1 866 472 5792. Again, that's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Becky at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the program. We've been talking about starting a nonprofit organization with our guest, Brad Lebowski. So I understand there's three things that nonprofits need to do regularly. Brad, why don't you give those to us? Sure. I think uh, the first thing that I always talk about in working with a nonprofit is compliance. Um, Every nonprofit needs to have certain rules, such as document retention, non-discrimination policy, um, that need to be in place to be IRS compliant. Um, And that's really important because with nonprofits, you don't want to be audited and have to pay a fine for something that's really easy to do and and to have on board in in your governance process. So, again, what I mentioned earlier is I do have a checklist that I work with nonprofits. I have examples of all the policies that are either mandated by federal law or really, really good to have. Um, And when IRS does audits, they look for those things. So, the checklist really covers that, and it's it's a really great way to stay compliant. Um, if somebody uh, in the community says, hey, I want to see your 990 or I want to see your policy on this, that's their public right to do so because you're a public uh, organization. Mm-hmm. And to have that organized and, and easily attainable um, is uh easier on the nonprofit, and then, of course, helps you become compliant, um, okay. which is important. And, and, and again, me, a, a, a consultant's going to help them through that process, too. So they, you know, yeah. they're not going to get it all from this radio show today, but they can definitely, um, that's another reason to have a consultant on your on your board. So, exactly. So and I think I'm on your website, and I think you put some information. Yeah. If somebody wants to contact me, they can. Yes. And, yes. and I'm happy to hand out the checklist because I think it's just an easy way to help you stay compliant. Good. So let's switch gears and go to diversified funding. I know that was one of your things that you and I talked about on the phone a little bit. So talk to us about diversified funding. What does that mean? So this is really important for nonprofits because a lot of times when I work with nonprofits, they really focus on grants, heavily on grants. And the problem (laughs) with that is grants are temporary. 
Yes, so and they're tough to get. So maybe you'll get one for two years. Maybe you'll get one for a year. But a lot of times when you get a grant, you may not get another one from the same organization. So, and, and you know, Brad, check- you put a lot of time and energy into getting a, a you know, to applying for a grant, and then sure. you wait three or six months, and then you find out you didn't get it. So, you know, that you're right, putting all your eggs in that basket, really tough, really tough. It, it so. is tough, and, and it's tough to maintain long term. So, mm-hmm. on my checklist has a funding survey of all the different ways to fundraise. So, we all know about grants, we all know about corporate. Uh, organizations that can either give in kind or give money. Um, sometimes they're like Microsoft, for example. If they send you 10 volunteers to work, Microsoft pays the organization $25 an hour for every hour they worked. Wow, so that's awesome. <laughs> every organization has a different way of community impact as it relates to philanthropy. So mm-hmm. corporate sponsorship is important. Um, and is can last longer. Corporations mm-hmm. like to keep relationships over time. So you can have a corporate sponsor 5, 10, even 15 years, um, and that's really important. Um, I know Breast Friends does some amazing events, and events are another type of funding. It's, it's not only good for uh, fundraising, but awareness and marketing of mm-hmm. the organization. Right. Um, and there's also some, I like to say, sophisticated ways of getting funds. Some are working with uh, investment firms that do donor-advised funds, mm-hmm. where uh, people that donate with an investment firm like Charles Schwab or Fisher Investments or others, they say, okay, I'm going to buy this much stock, I'm going to put that much in a mutual fund, and I'm going to put this amount of money in a donor-advised fund. Mm-hmm. So to become eligible and, and to be part of that fund, you have to work with that brokerage firm or that financial institution. Uh, maybe they'll put your information on the website. It takes some time. But at the end of the year or when that uh, individual investor says, hey, I want to donate, they look at a menu and say, hey, there's Breast Friends. It sounds good to me. I had a, a family member uh, affected by cancer, so I'm going to donate there. That's a really uh, up-and-coming uh, type of uh, fundraising and getting funding for nonprofits, which I recommend. Mm-hmm. There's also something that we call legacy gifts, where mm-hmm. somebody puts you in their will or perhaps gives you a stock transfer, um, which is really And we've actually received, we've received some of those kinds of gifts. And, you know, what a blessing it is to receive a gift like that, um, especially if it comes from somebody that you helped in their journey and they surprise you with that. Um, it's, it's very touching. And I think when we got that last gift like that, Sharon, I know I, I, know, I think we all pretty much cried our eyes out because (laughs) it was also a reminder that that person was gone but Mm -hmm. um that donation was so wonderful to receive that so totally yeah yeah it's really nice to be a beneficiary it's a surprise and those can be long term but it's Mm -hmm. really advantageous for a donor to say look here's a hundred shares of my stock they can take Mm -hmm. a donation of the market value a hundred percent of the market value of the stock they transfer the stock to the nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And the nonprofit can say, well, this is great. We're going to sell 25% now and keep it and see if it grows. Or they may say, hey, we need the money. We're going to sell 100% of Liquidate it. Liquidate it, yeah. Which is fine. Yeah. 
Yep, we had one of those too. (laughs) But it's phenomenal for both parties. It's a complete win-win situation. The other thing that's really important for diversified funding of nonprofits is what we call fee-based revenue. So, Mm -hmm. for example, if you're providing services uh, that somebody can pay you for, say, look, I'm going to do rounds in a clinic or I'm going to do a seminar in a clinic um, and they'll pay me $150 or $500 to do that, then that's a way it's called fee-based um, mm-hmm. where you can, you know, take that money and it goes right to the organization and it basically mm-hmm. offsets your time, but the organization paying you uh, could be a mm-hmm. donation for them, but it's great for the nonprofit because you're providing a service for that fee. And that's mm-hmm. something that can really get creative and grow and, and be really helpful. Of course, there's individual donations, there's mm-hmm. online campaigns, um, but as a professional fundraiser, a lot of times I'll see people say, hey, I need a grant writer and I need some help grant writing. And then I give them that checklist and I find out, well, grants are great, but you have opportunities here, here, and here. If we're going to raise funds, let's make sure we're doing many different things than just one thing. And that means you're not leaving any money on the table. Great. Yep. So that's that makes really sense. Important. So yeah. let's let's switch gears again because we're going to run out of time here and I don't want to. So <laughs> So let's talk about attracting and keeping volunteers, but we kind of need the short version. So is there a tip of the day <laughs> for yeah, attracting and here, keeping here's, volunteers? Here's two really important quick tips. One, make sure volunteers are doing what they're truly good at. If you have a marketing person and you have an empty spot on the finance committee, don't force them to be on the finance committee because out of (laughs) guilt, they're going to say yes and not be happy. Make sure if you get somebody who's passionate about something, make sure they're doing that for you. And the other thing is beyond recognition for volunteers, make sure they're engaged. Communication is clear. You thank them often. Maybe you have an event just for your volunteers. But the more you engage your volunteers, wish them a happy birthday, wish them a happy anniversary, let them know that you're thinking about them when you don't need their help. That really keeps them engaged, and they brag about their experience. And when they brag about their experience, the organization flourishes. They get more donations, they get more volunteers, and they're able to retain their volunteers, which is really important because an experienced volunteer, you don't have to retrain them. They know what to do. This is my third year doing it. This is my fourth year doing it. And they end up doing a fantastic job. You know, Brad, when when we talk about, you know, Sharon and I kind of learned this the hard way and there were some mistakes we made along the way and one of them that we made really goes to this. We had a really amazing volunteer who came in and basically said she would do anything we needed. So we had her doing this one project every time she came in and then she quit. And we found out later that she quit because that job was so tedious and it was way below her skill set. And so we, we made that mistake of, of, of putting her into a job that wasn't fulfilling her need. And so rather than asking somebody, you know, what are you willing to do? What do you love to do? And to your point, find out what, they, what drives them and what are they good at and make sure you're utilizing people in the capacity that they really can do because we yeah. did lose a very good volunteer as a result of that because we didn't we didn't maximize her potential there. So that's really good advice and I think we've done a better job of keeping volunteers 
you know, because we do some of those things. And it sounds like we need to do more of them. Sharon, let's of get off. Of course. That. <laughs> so listen, Brad, we're going to run we out of time. We can always do better. <laughs> I do have one other question before we run out of time. And, and it's sure. not something that we just talked about in the break. What happens if a nonprofit closes? You know, because here's the here's the truth. Running a nonprofit is very difficult. It's a lot of work and not everyone is really cut out to go through all these steps. And if that's you but you still want to give back, join another organization that's already existing and doing the kind of work that you feel passionate about. But if you do start a nonprofit and you're 5 years down the road and you decide you don't want to do this anymore and you want to close up shop, what happens? Yeah, and really briefly, that's all explained in your uh, articles of incorporation in your bylaws. It's called the disillusion clause, where when you dissolve, this is what happens with the money. This is where our expertise goes. Um, and that's something I would help somebody with or any attorney can help someone with, um, you know, how to properly close a nonprofit and make sure all the resources go to the right place, even though you stop doing it. Um, you know, you do good with what you've done. And there also may be a, a organization out there that may benefit from your database, may benefit from what you've learned, and you can share mm-hmm. that with them so they right. can in part continue what you've done. Right. But bottom line, the resources that you raised and acquired during the time that you had a nonprofit do not belong to you. So you can't just liquidate everything, sell everything off, and then go on an extended vacation somewhere. That money (laughs) has to be given to another nonprofit. Um, if there's right. anything left after all bills are paid. So, Brad, you know what? I really hate to even say this to you, but we are at the end. And I want to thank you so much. I know Sharon and I have loved working with you in the past. You are an amazing talent. You've got great knowledge. And if anybody does need a nonprofit consultant, Brad, and they want to work with you, quickly give us your email and tell them, tell people how to reach you. Sure. It's my name, Brad Lebowski, no dots or spaces at comcast.net or they can just go to bradlebowski.com and look at my website and contact me from there and I really not only enjoy working with the both of you and we've had so much success together but what both of you do is amazing and and when your ears are burning from time to time it's me raving about (laughs) what you do and how good your organization is so thank you so much for this opportunity Thanks. And for all of our listeners out there, if you enjoy our show and you like listening to our broadcasts every single week, we get about 5,000 downloads a month on the different shows that we have, which is very exciting. But we would like to encourage you to go online to breastfriends.org. Take a look at our website. There's a lot of great resources there. If you just want to support the program, click on that big blue donation button at the top of the page and make a donation to Breast Friends so we can keep bringing this program to you. So in the meantime, just remember we will be back next week and don't forget there is always hope and we're here to help you find it thank you for listening to breast friends cancer support radio please join sharon hennepin and becky olson again next friday at 1 p.m eastern time 10 a.m pacific time on the voice america health and wellness channel there is always hope and we'll help you find it we'll talk again next time